We've been talking about the kingdom of God in recent weeks, and we're going to continue to talk about that for a few weeks. Uh, before I dive into my message today, I wanted to update you a little bit. Uh, I had a nice long chat with Mr. Dana Easterling this week. And Dana and I catch up regularly on the phone. For those of you who don't know who Dana and Cheryl Easterling are, they were a part of our church for somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years, I think. And they planted a church into Squim, Washington, which is in the northwest of the state of Washington. And uh, we've been a part of that church plant. We've supported them financially. We've sent them uh, items that they've needed. Some of you have gone out to visit them. In fact, I think a member of our church, Mike and Tammy Dillman, are there visiting right now. And uh, they, they're uh, just in this town of Squim. It's like a retirement destination type of place. It's got a quite a bit older demographic in terms of population. Um, and it's been going well for them. They moved into a little clothing shop. Uh, they had to go to two services fairly quickly because it was so tiny. But this week, today, in fact, probably an hour from now or so, actually I think they meet at 11 Washington time, so about an hour and a half from now, they will be meeting for the first time in the local Holiday Inn, and so they're going to go back to one service. Uh, they're consistently getting over 40 people attending their services every week, and so it's grown a lot in the last six months. So I just wanted to update you guys on what's going on there. Keep them in your prayers. Uh, we also, from time to time, we've, we've had an ongoing financial relationship with them. If you were feeling led to give towards the church in Squim, we would be happy to make sure that gets into their hands as well. But we're excited for Dana and Cheryl and what God's doing there. And we're excited to be a part of something that's an extension of you. It's, they're, they're one of us. And they're out there doing uh, what the scripture teaches us to do. And so we're excited about that. I just wanted to give you guys a quick update on them to keep them in mind. Really appreciate Dana and Cheryl. Uh, we've been talking about the kingdom, kingdom of God. And I want to review a couple of things that we discussed over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, when Jesus came to the earth and he started his ministry and John the Baptist as well, who was just before him, they were preaching that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you see, that was the message that Jesus preached. It was the message that John preached. It was the message that Jesus instructed his disciples to go out and preach, that the kingdom is at hand. And it warrants the question for you and I, well, then what is the kingdom? What does that mean to us? And how is it relevant in our lives today? And we talked about the idea that there's a world kingdom or a world system that has been in existence since man fell in creation, and that system has been corrupted by sin. Sin is the thing that pulls us out of alignment with our Creator. It's misalignment with God. In definition, really, that's what it is. And we see that the world system is that way. And Jesus came, and He's ushering in a new kingdom, a new system, a new way of operating, a new authority, a new agreement with mankind. It's new. Even though it's 2,000 years old, establishing on the earth, it's still spreading around the world. It's the kingdom of God being established on the earth. So we looked at the contrast between the brokenness of the world system, uh, all the different things that, that corrupt, and then we look at the coming in of God's kingdom and what the difference of those things are. We're going to continue to talk about that in the weeks ahead. And then last week, I thought Corey Swanson did a fantastic job of laying one of the most fundamental, foundational understandings that we need to have as believers. And I hope you remember the phrase he used a hundred times during his message last week. God loves you 
very, very much. Okay, don't make me say it a bunch of times today too, so you pay attention. God loves you how much? Very, very much. And I want to just take a few minutes before I move on to bring some emphasis to what Corey taught us last week. This point is absolutely necessary in your Christian foundation to understand. When you build a house, you lay the foundation first, right? And what happens, Mr. Schwabauer, if the foundation is out of square or out of level or out of plumb or not true? We would say something is true, it's straight or it's square, it's in alignment. What do we do when something is not? You end up with a leaning tower of pizza or something like that. The thing is, when you lay a crooked cornerstone or a foundation or something that's out of alignment, as you build on that foundation, it continues to go in a direction out of alignment. And so if we don't understand that God actually loves us very, very much in time, if we build on a foundation that doesn't really believe that or doesn't really comprehend that, that informs our views and beliefs and behaviors further down the road. Because eventually I have to interact with other human beings. And if I don't believe that God loves me very, very much, I doubt very much he loves them very, very much. And that informs the way I treat them and communicate with them and interact with them. It informs how much grace I really have. We have to think about these fundamental things that we believe and whether or not they're really in our foundation. Because in time, if we build on something crooked, it will be crooked. And the, the higher the building gets, you know, if your foundation is tipped a little bit, the further you build, the further out of whack it gets. It's so important for us to wrestle with and come to peace with the idea that God loves us very, very much. Because that informs everything else about what God has done for you. If God didn't love you very, very much, he probably wouldn't have gone to all the effort and the design that he did to teach us about God, to bring Christ into the world, to give us the scripture, to give us his spirit. He, wouldn't, he didn't have to do any of that. But he was motivated by love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not God was so sick and tired of the world, or whatever other motivation God may have had. The scripture informs us that the motive of God was love. He loves us very, very much. And it's so important for us to understand that when we start talking about the kingdom. Because the kingdom is the place where he has authority. And kingdom is what we are doing in this life. And if we don't understand that the king loves us very, very much, it really can mess with our understanding of how we are to operate. If we understand God our Father as this extreme, angry, aloof type of God, then our navigation through life is going to be extremely difficult. It's a misunderstanding that warps the way we view ourselves and the way we view and treat other people. It can be hard to accept. We've talked about this many times. I've told you I have a hard time sometimes believing that. Often many of us do. Because we're, we're, we're like Adam and Eve. We're their descendants. And we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we know about good and evil, we realize we're naked, just like Adam and Eve did. So symbolically, we understand because we know good and evil, we look at ourselves and we look in the mirror and see a reflection and we're not happy with it. Because it doesn't line up with our understanding of right and wrong, just like Adam and Eve. Like God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat? 
in the story of the Garden of Eden. We're the same way today. We have a knowledge of good and evil. And so sometimes when we look at ourselves, we, we think, how could God love us? I'm flawed. I'm naked, in a sense, before God. And so our tendency would be to believe that we are unlovable creatures. But in fact, that's not true. Love is a choice to prefer. Love is a choice that God makes on our behalf and a motive by which he has brought us salvation. So hopefully I've persuaded you in that very brief encouragement to wrestle with and come to grips with and hopefully dig down inside and and meditate upon it even this week. God loves me very, very much because almost everything else we do is informed from that point of view. And we talked in the week before that, I talked about seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus tells a story about, you know, well, he's explaining, don't worry about things. God knows that you need things. God knows that you have all kinds of needs in this world. But seek first the kingdom of God. So for us as believers, when we see that Jesus has instructed us to do this, we automatically should be asking ourselves the question, what then is the kingdom of God? What does it mean that we would be seeking it? Because everything else falls into place once we make God the priority. Once we make His mission our priority in life, everything else comes into order. Yesterday I was uh, officiated a wedding uh, for one of my cousins. We had a couple weddings yesterday in the Mount Helena family. And so I see we're a little sparse today. So a lot of people were working hard yesterday making weddings happen. But one of the things we talked about in there is that um, as a part of the wedding is, you know, our understanding of it, we talk about it as a church regularly, but, you know, oftentimes we believe that good marriages are, uh, you know, we, we meet each other and there's romantic sparks and there's an attraction and the romance and then, then that's how we get uh, engaged with somebody else and we end up, you know, getting married a lot of the time out of that, things like that. But then we believe that that romance or that emotional rush is supposed to carry us for the duration of our marriages. We think that love, lasting love, is based on romance. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Romance is a result of lasting love. The choice to give of yourself repeatedly. The choice to prefer somebody over yourself on a constant and regular basis ultimately creates a lasting environment where the rest of the good relationship stuff can come into place. It's the same with the kingdom of God. If we put the kingdom of God first, everything else in life falls into alignment. We're submitting ourselves to the will of God and the way he's leading us. We make that the priority, and then all of the other benefits we so much long for come into line after that. Jesus taught us to prioritize the kingdom in our lives. He taught us to prioritize the transition between the kingdoms. One of the ways I have talked about it before is the idea that the kingdom of God, you know, when you, Jesus taught in parables. And parables are, they're stories that help illustrate something in reality. They're not necessarily true stories, but they're metaphorical or allegorical. They, they illustrate something in reality. And because Jesus is the king of an invisible kingdom, he was having to give instructions and parables, ways that we could understand. And he talks about in terms of kingdom. So when, when I think of a kingdom, you know, I, there's a lot of things that I think of 
about what it means to be a kingdom. And I use that natural illustration to inform my understanding of Jesus and what he's doing on the earth. So I think, well, one of the logical things is that a kingdom, you know, it has boundaries. Well, what does that mean? The kingdom of God doesn't really have physical boundaries, but there's this idea that there's a transition from one kingdom to another. So I, of course, think in, you know, I like the fantasy novels and movies and Lord of the Rings type stuff and all that. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, the less realistic it is, the more I like it. And so I can imagine a scene where I'm standing on some ground in a kingdom and there's a drawbridge across the moat into another kingdom. And I can just picture the whole thing. And I have an opportunity in that moment to cross that drawbridge into that other kingdom and become a part of whatever that kingdom is. And I think that's very much what Jesus, part of what he was talking about, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is here. You aren't far from the kingdom of God, he said. Or it's hard for certain people to enter the kingdom of God. There's a line there that is crossed between jurisdiction or boundaries and the kingdom of God is within the kingdom of the world and he's inviting us to cross that boundary into his jurisdiction, into his authority and become a participant in what he is doing. We, out of those teachings and that understanding of the scripture, ought to really be asking ourselves questions about what does it mean to participate in the kingdom of God? What is this like? How does it work? I think one of the other things besides the idea that there's a transition between boundaries, there's a, a line of authority or a line of jurisdiction, immediately leads me to the idea that there must be some sort of authority in this kingdom. And who's in charge of a kingdom? A king! You guys are brilliant. We're on track today. There's a king in charge of the kingdom. Well... In our American context, it can be a little bit difficult. I was recently in Australia, and Australia is still loyal to the Queen of England, a concept that just doesn't... I was like, okay, explain this to me. And I had a number of people trying to explain to me what it meant to be loyal to the Queen and still be an independent nation, and I just couldn't understand. I didn't grow up in that, that circumstance. But it's still actually very, very important to those nations that are part of the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom to remain loyal to the monarchy, even though the monarchy doesn't necessarily have real power. It's just an interesting dynamic. But it does illustrate for me that I don't necessarily always understand kingdom very well. I live in a government and a culture where I'm the boss of me, at least I think so. I have independence and nobody tells me what to do and I'm my own God and I'm my own authority and I'm the one I'm trying to please. And that can be a hard transition out of our kind of mindset to the idea that we're actually part of a system where there's a king who has ultimate authority. We talked a few weeks ago about God being ultimate. He's, he is the definition of love. He is the definition of truth. Well, this king of ours is ultimate in this kingdom. He is the authority. There's a story in John chapter 18, when Jesus is about to be crucified and he's standing before Pilate. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? I think he said it like that. What is truth? Actually, the story goes on, and there's no more dialogue. He said, What is truth? And he walks out to the Jews and says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. And, of course, it goes on into the crucifixion. Jesus is a king. He's the ultimate authority. He's the one that oversees his kingdom. He's the one who we look to for information about what he wants done in his kingdom, how he wants things done, what the laws are, what the boundaries are, what the cultural expectations are of his kingdom are. And it's not one of this world. Now the book of Revelation, if we're to take it very literally, would imply the idea that, we, well, we know that Jesus is returning. He said he would. And it talks about him establishing his kingdom on the earth. And in the end, it ultimately saying that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. So there is an idea that perhaps someday in some sort of natural way, his kingdom will be established on the earth in a very literal sense. But for now, this kingdom is not of this world. It's not even visible. It's not something where we go and literally take over nations and conquer for. But it's something where a message has come that is changing people's lives on the inside in an invisible way. His authority is coming into people's lives in an invisible way. He's transforming people's lives in ways that we don't always see. People are being born a second time, a rebirth of the inner man that Jesus talked about. We're talking about being born again. And as that is happening, people are bringing themselves under the rulership of Jesus Christ himself. That's what it means to enter that kingdom, that invisible kingdom. I think sometimes we always struggle of wanting to bring all of that into our natural reality. But it isn't just a natural kingdom. It's so much more. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in you. It's around you. It's something that's happening. Jesus is always, you know, he's talking in these parables in these ways we don't necessarily understand. Using natural terms to describe something that we don't understand. Or can't completely understand. 
And although, you know, again, he's drawing attention to this idea that is not in the literal sense that we understand, but it is in the midst of you. So we come into this understanding where when people like you and I who ascribe to the idea that we are now citizens of a different place, not just a citizen of this world and some sort of natural human government boundaries, but I'm actually the citizen of someplace else, another kingdom. The scripture teaches us our citizenship is not here, ultimately. And as we become citizens of that kingdom, it begins to influence around us. And so all of us sitting in this room right now, in what we're doing, we're participating in that kingdom. We're participating in the culture that God is wanting to establish amongst his people. This is really the heart of why we want to talk about kingdom for a few weeks this summer is because there's a culture that is derived from being a part of the kingdom. A way of life that influences us. In Webster, the definition, one of the definitions of culture, and this is the one I really gravitated towards in my understanding of, what culture would be in our context. It's a set of shared values, attitudes, goals, and practices that characterize a group. Uh, we have opportunity to work in foreign nations quite a bit. Many of you have been to South Africa, the Philippines. Uh, there are various other nations. And when you go into another place, they often have a very different culture. <clears throat> Even England or the United Kingdom, you would expect that going there, being an English-speaking nation, that you would run into something extremely similar to American culture. You would be mistaken. It is very different. So even though there might be some big picture similarities, the values, the practices, the goals, and the conduct of different groups of people in different places are very different. It's very interesting in Christianity, you can have two groups of people that believe exactly the same things at a fundamental level. They believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for our sins, etc., etc., etc. And you can have one group of people that is thriving and life-giving and productive and happy, and they're, they're just moving forward with momentum in life, and you can have another group of people with exactly the same fundamental beliefs. And the culture in that place is divided, backbiting, gossip, division, anger, hatred, those kind of things. So we might ascribe to some basic fundamental things about God, like God loves us very, very much, or other foundational understandings. Jesus is the Son of God. But the way in which we conduct ourselves based on that knowledge de determines culture. Are you with me? We want to look into the Scripture not just to understand some of those fundamental truths, but also to understand the heart, the attitude, the values, the communication, the expectations, the goals of Christ Himself. The King has an idea about how He wants His kingdom to operate. I was in Romania in like 2004 or something like that. Jason Harris, who's on staff as a pastor here, served there for 
six months or something like that, and then we took several teams back. But in the city we went, uh, Sigishara, Romania, was the last functional citadel in Europe. And it's literally like a walled thing on top of a hill. But you would walk in the, the entrance, and I can't remember exactly what the entrance was like, but, you know, it had the stone streets and stuff like that. You would walk in, and you walk. There's, there's restaurants, there's markets, there's hotels, there's all of this commerce and this activity going on within the walls of this citadel. And I think of that when I think of the culture of the kingdom of God. When we, when we enter into the kingdom of God, what's going on in there? How are these people interacting? What are their values? What are their goals? What are their practices? How do I blend with this culture? What is it all about? And I think it's so important for us as believers to not only come to an understanding of some fundamental truths, but that we then begin to wrestle with how those fundamental truths inform our relationships with one another and the culture we're facilitating amongst us. Obviously here as a church and a group of people that gather together on a Sunday morning, we want to establish a culture that is healthy and vibrant and reproductive and accurate reflection of Christ's heart for one another, that we're full of grace, but we also pursue the truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right? All of these things. So we want to, what does it take to establish a healthy family? A healthy culture, a healthy group of people. Well, when we understand we're part of a kingdom, then we ask ourselves those questions. How does this kingdom interact? What does the scripture teach us about it? In order to fully understand and engage with the calling of God on us as individuals and us corporately, so you, think of yourself as an individual here, in order to understand and engage with the calling of God on your life, you must pursue and understand this kingdom because you have a part to play in it. What is that? Whether it's in very direct ways or indirect ways. What is the culture of that kingdom? Understanding culture is an, uh, a way that we could... Um, understanding the culture is an accurate way to reflect God, how we want to reflect God accurately in our day-to-day lives, if that made any sense at all. Here's another thought about culture, and you've heard me allude to it already a little bit. You could understand, okay, you could go to England, you could go to South Africa, you could go to Greece, go to China, go to Russia. You could have read all of the laws of that nation. You could have understand how to drive there, which is really an adventure, I went to South Africa. They drive on the wrong side of the road. The steering wheel's on the wrong side of the car. They gave me a car at the airport and let me leave. And let me tell you what, it was fun. In the United States, we have certain symbols when we're driving, when we're angry, that people use particular fingers that they show you and stuff when they're not happy. <clears throat> I'm not sure what it is in South Africa, but I'm sure whatever it was, I probably saw it a few times. I might understand all of the laws of a nation. I could understand how the government works. I could understand where the boundaries are. And I could not have a clue how the culture works. I might have all of that understanding and totally miss the point for how to interact with the people. And how to understand. This is one of our battles with missions, right? We have an American culture. We have an American way of life. And we go into a situation where 
we then have to wrestle with, do I just make other nations conform to American culture, or do I find a way to reach their culture as it is and help their culture find the kingdom of God? When we're wrestling with these cultural issues, it's important. But now think of that in terms of the kingdom of God. What is the culture of the kingdom of God? What would people we know say the culture of the kingdom of God is like? Would they say, that is a generous culture. That is a gracious culture. That is an upright culture. That's a culture that's healthy. Or would they have other thoughts about the culture? Of course, we're all flawed, and so at times we do not accurately reflect what we believe. But it's important for us to be thinking through those things. Okay, so this kingdom has a king, and he's reigning over this place where he has authority and jurisdiction, and people have submitted themselves to him, and there's a culture being established in that. I, I, I just got to hit this one more time. We, as believers, need to be wrestling with what the culture of the kingdom is. That's why we're talking about it in these weeks and months is because from that understanding it will inform who we are as a church how we're going to operate as a church and how you as an individual would operate okay we have a king what does a king do the king rules he has authority in order to prioritize the kingdom which jesus was telling us to do seek first the kingdom then we need to set our sights on the king himself. That's the key. He is the one who determines everything that's going on in the kingdom. He's an accessible king. He's a king we can approach confidently. He's a king who loves and cares about our day-to-day needs. And he's asking us to come to him, to seek him. And so in order to prioritize the kingdom and the kingdom way in the world, we first must set our sights on the king himself. We relate directly to our king, which isn't something they can say in Australia or the UK or anywhere else on earth, that all the citizens have access to their king. We have a kingdom that we have access to the king. If we want to understand what his expectations are, we have access to him. Not only that, he has taken himself, his spirit, who he is, and spread it to all of his people. He has poured it out on all of his citizens that they might understand his heart and his mind and be led by him in a very direct, day-to-day way that he would fill them. So we, we can think about going before a king in a very natural, physical way, but right here, right now, the king resides in you. He occupies territory in your life. He's accessible to you right here and right now. His spirit, his mind, we see in the New Testament, his DNA, if you will, is right there accessible to us. He wants to be in us. He wants to lead us. He wants us to seek him and listen to him. So not only is the king himself approachable, He's actually poured himself out to all of us in the form of his spirit. The kingdom is where he reigns. He's authoritative. Without a king, there is no kingdom. 
In the Lord's Prayer, as it's come to be known, Matthew chapter 20, oh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6. There's one line in there, and you all probably should know it. If you don't, we probably should talk about it someday. There's a lot we can teach out of this prayer. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and there's a line in there that says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this idea here, these parallel statements, your kingdom come, your will be done, that wherever the will of Christ is being done, that's where he reigns. If I've given him lordship of my life, if I've submitted myself to his will, his kingdom has come into my life. Wherever he has established his will is where his kingdom is. Which then brings us to the next question of, is he ruling in your life? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life as it is in your realm, Lord. Your kingdom come and will be done right here. But if I'm not allowing the will of God to lead me or guide the steps of my life or be a, what I'm following, he doesn't really have authority there. Which leads us back to the thought that we often find ourselves coming across is, am I God or is he God? Am I on the throne or is he on the throne? Is he establishing the culture of this kingdom or am I dictating what it is based on my own desires? Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's just a foundational prayer that God has instructed us to pray, that his will would be done in our lives, that his rulership and reign would be established inside of us and amongst us as we gather. There's a conversation I've found myself in several times. It's interesting. I don't necessarily have an answer for you, but maybe you could contemplate it a little bit. Because the church has been around for 2,000 years, what is the church, by the way? Us. It's the people. It's not the building. It's not the denomination. It's not the Sunday morning meeting. It's the people. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my assembly, my congregation, those that come together. And after 2,000 years of all the different things that the church has participated in and what it looks like in its various different forms and all of this, you end up with uh, a number of people that become a little bit cynical with the whole thing. And all of us probably know what it's like to wrestle with that a little bit. There are things we kind of roll our eyes at. And we're like, ah, oh, yeah, that was the old school or whatever. And we kind of can get this attitude and... and I think one of the things we often are wrestling with is, is it, possible, is it possible to be the kingdom and not be the church? Or is it possible to be the church and not be the kingdom? And I, I've actually had this conversation with people because um, they're the idea that, well, we don't want to be church, but we want to be kingdom. I'm like, I don't know that I can separate the two. Wherever, how do you become a child of God? You submit yourself to Christ. You become the church when you give your life to Christ. Period. You are the church. It's the people. Where is God reigning and having will and authority outside of the church? Of course, he oversees all things. But for whatever reason, in his sovereignty, he continues to allow there to be a worldly kingdom that operates. Anyway, something for you to think about. I think personally that 
You can't separate them. The church is God's answer for the world. We are the ambassadors of the kingdom. We are the ones that established the kingdom culture. You know what an apostle was before it was the apostles that we understand it today? They were part of the Roman infrastructure. They were the individuals that would be sent. If you're a historian, give me some grace here. I'm just going to make this real simple. They would go and they would establish the Roman culture in whatever cities Rome conquered. So they'd go in, you know, there'd be they'd conquer a Greek city or they'd conquer a city in Turkey or wherever they were, Jerusalem, and they'd have the apostles, the one that came in and would try to establish Roman culture within the conquered territory. Well, the apostles, of that's the word Jesus chose to describe the apostles that, that, that he sent out. And what, what are we all doing? We still have an apostolic call in our lives to establish the culture of a kingdom that's taking territory. With every life that gives itself to Christ, there's a culture that then comes in of the kingdom, a way of life of the king. And slowly the old culture inside of us gives way to the new culture of the king. Maybe we weren't very generous before, but we come to realize that the kingdom of God is generous. And that generosity slowly chips away at our heart. And sooner or later we transform in the direction of being more generous. Perhaps we lacked any grace or forgiveness for our fellow men. And when the kingdom of God comes in, we realize we are forgiven Therefore, we should forgive. And the culture of the kingdom starts taking over in our hearts and we transform to being more forgiving. There's a culture being established. That's what an apostolic work is. That's what you and I are on the earth. We are the ambassadors, the representatives, the fragrance of Christ. Everywhere we go, we're bringing a different way of life. A way of life that has, that, whose ultimate source is love. Grace, truth, a reconciliation to the maker of all things. Everywhere we go, we carry that kingdom with us. Are we really allowing that to radiate from our lives and impact the lives of those around us? Or even one another? In Matthew chapter 28, Verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the boss. He's the king. He's the chief. He's the head of state. He's the man. And he's God. All authority has been given to him. And then he goes on from here to launch us. Therefore, because he's the king, because he has the authority, because he triumphed over death, because he bought us forgiveness, as we sang in the song earlier, uh, the old hymn. Because he did all those things for us and God, and he has all authority, therefore go. Sent. Apostelos. Therefore go. And make disciples of all nations. Your kingdom come. Bring it into the world. Bring it to the lives of those around you. And as a church, as a local, small expression of that kingdom, 
We need to be pursuing, together, you and I, that culture. And we're going to be talking in the weeks ahead about that culture, about what it means, you know, what some of those more specifics are. We're going to stay big picture for another week. Next week, I want to start talking about the way and the truth and the life that Jesus said he was, and then looking at those attitudes of the kingdom that he brings to us. But as the ultimate authority, he also then, in the end, is our judge. The king loves us. The king gave his life for us. The king is establishing his kingdom on the earth. And he's using you and I to do it. Even though we didn't deserve it. But there is a time coming where the king returns for his congregation, for his people, for you and I. He's coming back, the king is. And he's establishing something even more significant moving forward from there. And in that authority, he's also our judge. He's the reconciler. And so therefore, he's worthy. He's he's the loving father we run to. And he's the all-powerful judge we hold in reverence. It's both. And sometimes in our reality, it's hard to believe that you could do both. Could I revere my father and deeply love my father at the same time? Yeah, you can. Can we hold God in great reverence and awe and respect and yet know he's the loving father we can run to in our time of need? God is bigger than man. He's greater than man. He's perfect. He is more than capable of being both for you and I. Would you stand, please? I hope that you're motivated this morning about the kingdom of God and your part in it. You are a role player in this culture. And I hope this week, even as you're reading your Bible, because I know you will, right? You'll read the scriptures this week. Yes, good. Good job. As you do, think upon these things. Think upon the kingdom of God and who God has called you to be and what he wants to do on the earth and how we might more accurately reflect his heart to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your scriptures. Lord, we thank you for just starting this all out, this kingdom, this new covenant, back in the time when you were here on the earth in the flesh, and that you did so by laying down your life for us, the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, you just turned all of mankind's understanding on its head with just a totally different way of approaching things. Lord, we understand that that same attitude drives your kingdom today. You don't do things like man does things. You're capable of great love and grace and mercy. So, Father, today I pray for everyone that is here, Lord, has heard these words and these scriptures. Father, I pray that they will go down deep in all of our hearts. God, we want to be uh, revolutionary in the way we bring kingdom to the earth. And when we pray that prayer, when we pray that prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done. God, we want to experience that in a powerful and fresh and new way right here in Helena, Montana. From the little intricacies of our day-to-day life to the community life as a whole. God, that you would infiltrate all of that through us. Father, I pray that each one's heart would be stirred for their individual part in that culture that you're establishing, that kingdom culture here on the earth. 
Father, we thank you so much. Lord, I pray for continued grace upon each one. Continue to lead us as a church. God, I'm so excited about the days that are ahead and the things that you're doing. Pray that you would find us faithful with your call, that you would find us faithful to fulfill what you want us to fulfill as a group and as individuals right here in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.